Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Today we're going to be talking about the lizard overlords that secretly rule the entire planet. special episode of Reconsider, part of the Abora Podcast Network, where we don't do the thinking for you. But today we're going to be helping you learn how to think a little bit. We're doing a Toolbox Talk episode. For those of you who don't know what Toolbox Talks are, what we do is instead of talking about a specific issue, we talk about a specific tool that you can use to help your thinking when you're navigating politics. But really quick before we get started, the Agora Podcast Network is doing a five-minute survey to learn more about you. It's anonymous, but it tells us more about our audience so that we can actually reach more people. So we'll have a link in the show notes. It would be great if you could take five minutes and go do that. We'd really appreciate it. Right. Today, we're going to be talking about something that's near and dear to my and Eric's heart, which is stoicism. We'll give a little bit of a background on what it is, where it came from, who practiced it. Uh, what leaders have been effective using Stoic ideas, but then we'll also loop it back into the day-to-day, talk about how you can use it in your political conversations and discussions and whatnot. And it won't even require you signing up to be a full-fledged Stoic. There are still things mm. to take from it. Yeah, so today, Xander, we're going to be talking about our emotions. Oh, God. How do you feel right now? I feel I feel lovely. I can't wait. I cannot wait to talk about our emotions. I think I hear some apprehension in your voice. It's okay. You can open up to me uh, and our thousands of listeners. Exactly. So, <laughs> it's so Eric, just us. What, what, what is Stoicism? So Stoicism is a philosophy in its most basic sense. So and instead of being a philosophy about, you know, hey, what is love, man? Uh, Stoicism is a philosophy about how you as an individual can choose to think and react, think about and react to the situations that occur around you and to you. So what it is, is it's a guide, guiding framework for how you can choose to interpret and thereby choose to respond to what happens in the world. Yeah, and I, I think a key part of that is it does not mean ignoring emotions or pretending that they don't exist. I mean, part of the basic tenet of the philosophy is these are unavoidable aspects of the human experience. They're going to happen. It's it's a matter of how our intellectual mind can interpret those responses and those sensations and those experiences. Yeah, exactly. Whenever we talk about stoicism, people often think, well, that's a little odd. I mean, 
don't you want to have emotions? And I think the, the word stoic has been associated with someone who is emotionless. If someone has a stoic calm, they're not having a reaction. So the words drifted a little bit from when it was used in the 3rd century BC in Greece. Um, but it's but the philosophy has uh, you know a whole lot of applicable, like very applicable advice for us today, particularly in the realm of politics. And I think it's particularly applicable today because today everyone is really angry. I'm furious. I you can't hear it in my always voice. Mad. I'm so angry right now. And the reason we're angry is because so many people are so wrong. Yeah, and if my emotions tell me anything, Eric, it's that everyone else is wrong all the time and I'm right, right? Right, right. And this is not the only time in the United States that everyone's been really angry about politics. Uh, from what we hear from some folks that are a little older is that the 1960s was way worse. But emotions are really hot right now. And it seems that having an emotional reaction and that is uncontrolled or unthought about... And then acting on that emotional reaction is becoming more and more a part of U.S. politics and perhaps elsewhere as well. But we're going to talk about the United States because we know it. Right. So in particular, we will want to talk about how emotions can help and harm in politics. So there, there currently kind of seems to be this growing trend right now that uh, there, there's a consensus that one has a right to be angry and maybe even a duty given how they feel feel and respond to the political environment in which they find themselves. You may have found yourself in some situations, maybe with some friends at a party, where everyone's really mad about some event that happened that, you know, months later, you kind of know people aren't going to care about anymore. They'll have found something new to be mad about. But everyone really wants to show how mad they are. And you're kind of expected to show that you're mad, too. I'm so woke, man. Are you woke? Have you woken exactly. up? Exactly. Red-pilled, whatever it is, right? And... There seems to be the sense that if you're not sufficiently outraged or worked up about something, you must not care about something that's like very deep and important to your friends or to your community. Um, and so that I think we worry that it's it's created a bit of a vicious cycle. Yeah, so we're going to discuss a little bit about how stoicism can be used to approach the this anger that's almost expected or this anger that certainly everyone feels at some point when they're talking about politics and talk about how it can be used as a tool a tool that people from slaves to emperors have used for millennia to cope uh, cope with really challenging circumstances to lead and thrive in the face of either you know really glorious circumstances or really just horrible despairs and injustices yeah, and it's something that Xander and I both try to use and are constantly practicing. So we're we're going to be talking to you guys not from the perspective of sages, but from the perspective of, you know, really philosophical amateurs that are just like, you know, most of the people listening here, just trying to get through life and, and get through the political chaos that we're feeling today and also are trying to be as effective as possible. Um, and so this is a tool I think is really useful for both your own sanity uh, and for your effectiveness in the political sphere. Right. So what happens when you're angry, Eric? Well, there's a there's a physiological reaction associated with being angry. Um, it's a very, you know, it's an evolutionary thing that uh, was built into us over, uh, you know, countless millennia um, as a great reaction to when we're in mortal danger. 
um, and we need to fight. We need to be able to, you know, to potentially do violent harm in order to protect ourselves. Um, and this physiological reaction, you know, causes our heart rate to go up. Um, it causes uh, adrenaline to pump through our veins and other hormones to run through us in order to change how our brain's working from being a rational, thoughtful, hey, I wonder how we should deal with this thing to a very quick thinking, very aggressive, um, very direct mechanism. Uh, because if you don't act quickly in these kinds of life or death situations, it's death. Um, and so when we're angry, our brains actually change substantially, or at least the chemistry in our brains changes substantially and the parts of our brain that we use change. Yeah. And I think something to add to that is that it's not just with anger, it's with other types of emotions too. They all have a tendency mm -hmm. to, I mean, this might sound obvious, but color our experiences in a certain way such that it makes it difficult to see that they're even there, right? So it's not just that anger will cloud your judgment, is that it, it also makes it more difficult to recognize that you're angry and therefore your judgment is affected at that particular moment. Exactly. And so this anger, it, it actually turns off the part of our brain that's really good at like thinking about and solving puzzles and being strategic and choosing between a whole lot of different options in a rational way. We are both blinded and blinded to the fact that we are blinded. I don't know about you, man. I'm totally woke. I, I, this woke. is a new thing that I just learned that people are saying now, to be woke. Have you heard about Red Pill? Uh, I mean, I thought you were referencing The Matrix. Am I too old? Uh, no, it's, it's, it's back. Red Pill is back. And um, I think it's more of an alt-right thing. Don't hold me to that. But uh, if you've taken the red pill, you you see reality for what it really is. And therefore, you are part of whatever very specific political interpretation. Like this political interpretation, it, it is the red pilled one. You are red pilled. I'm, I'm going to take the liberty of just taking a quick tangent. I, I made some joke the other day on my friend's Facebook, uh, some, some comment he made. It's always a bad idea. It's, uh, no, this one actually turned out to be all right. I have oh, okay, grown great. as an individual, you see. And uh, I made some comment about uh, it was it was a it was a response to him saying something. Oh, okay, how can people et cetera et cetera? And I go, it's definitely it's definitely the lizard people, man. The reptilians have taken over the planet, and I, that's that was just kind of a joke. And um, in response, someone posted. I they they were obviously you know joking around as well, but these things exist. A link to like this. It was like a fifty page long infinite scroll web page about how the reptilians are actually. They have yeah. infiltrated elite society. And like I, I spent yeah. like a good 15 minutes reading this and it was just the craziest thing I've come across in such a long time. <laughs> it's a thing. People actually believe it. Uh, Listed people running society. I mean, it just it just makes sense, man. All right. Sorry. So stoicism. Tangent over. Yeah. So one of the I think there's a case to be made that your emotional response to something doesn't change it. Right? So something is what it is, and whatever story you tell or emotion you have about it or judgment you pass about it doesn't change its nature. It just is what it is. And one of the ways that I often think about this when I'm having an emotional reaction is in this great movie, Bridge of Spies, Tom Hanks is the lawyer helping the Russian spy um, have his his like rights defended. Uh, and they're, they're sitting in like a holding cell... And Tom Hanks is talking about, yeah, it's treason, so, you know, you could die. And he goes, yeah, okay. And at some point, Tom Hanks goes, aren't you worried? And the spy looks up and replies to him, would it help? 
And I've always loved that because it helps me remind myself, like, oh, is it is it going to help me right now to have this emotional reaction, right? Is this going to make my situation better? Is it going to change reality around me? Right. So then the question is, how much can we actually control our emotions? If it's only a little, can we at least then manage how we react or respond to them? Yeah, one of the really exciting things about a lot of recent neuroscience is that it's showing that over time, much like exercising a muscle, we can exert more control over our emotions and or be able to shorten the duration of negative emotions, right? So if we become angry or sad or upset, you know, instead of like, you know, our ice cream falls on the ground and instead of throwing a temper tantrum for 30 minutes, we're able to say, oh, God, okay, I'm over it. You know, and, and shorten that period about which we are upset. And so there is, I think, a lot of hope for, you know, hey, it's it's we'll never exert perfect control. But over time, if we practice, we're going to be able to get better at being command of our emotions rather than letting them be in command of us. But to be fair, Eric, that really depends on the flavor of the ice cream that you've dropped onto the floor. That's true. If you drop, you know, some butter pecan, oh, it's just what a tragedy, incredible tragedy. Months of mourning. And that brings us to another interesting question. And I think one of them is, do you have a right to be angry? Like, is it is it right and good and proper and just to be angry in response to something you perceive as a moral or political outrage? Yeah, well, I, th I think it depends on what your, your objectives are, right? If that's the story you want to tell yourself, that's fine. Uh, and maybe that helps some people be vocal in a way that they wouldn't in other circumstances, right? And it's certainly, in terms of do you actually have a right? Yeah, it's a free country. I mean, you have a right to do anything that doesn't seriously harm someone else, right? Well, in theory. But having the right to do something still doesn't mean that it's advantageous to either the national political dialogue or or your individual circumstance and your mental sanity responding to that national political dialogue, which is, I mean, having some degree of sanity when it comes to politics is ultimately somewhat necessary, right? If you're going to maintain uh, healthy political discussions over a longer period of time. So that also matters. The other question I really like to ask myself is, if I could choose to have an emotion right now, what would that emotion be? Right. If I could, if I thought of emotions as, as tools that I can use to accomplish my goals, um, be they my personal internal goals or my goals for the world, um, what would I choose? And so in response to a particular outrage or problem, you know, would you choose to be angry or would you choose to, say, have a cool level head about it? Yeah, so needless to say, this all takes some degree of conscious effort, right? To acquaint ourselves with, I mean, what emotions, it's more like what our our internal sensations are and our moment-to-moment -moment experiences are as we experience emotions, right? So that's not easy. Uh, we're certainly not claiming to be experts at it. But I think even with the recognition that something like this might be impossible to do all the time in the long run, I think there are still benefits to making the effort, even if you only encounter imperfect progress. Mm. And there are lots of tools, uh, more than ever, obviously, to develop our skills and improving our emotional awareness, right? Which Xander was talking about, like being in tune with your experience and being able to recognize like, oh, I'm, I'm angry right now. 
and our self-control where we could say, I'm angry and, and do I want to be angry anymore? Um, we have a ton of reading in the show notes that we encourage you to go look at. So these are books that are near and dear to our hearts that we've read, that we've, we've practiced. Much of it comes from Buddhism. Much of it comes from Stoicism of ancient Rome. Um, and a lot of it actually comes from modern cognitive psychology that's put a lot of these ideas and the practices, in particular things like meditation, to the test to be able to understand how they affect people's reality. Um, and so it's pretty exciting stuff. But first things first, a quick historical primer. What is Stoicism? Yeah, so like you said, the idea of being Stoic often gets a bad rap because it means or has come to mean in colloquial language, someone who is emotionless. Sometimes that can be positive, sometimes it could be negative, but in the face of things that would generally generate great emotion in most people. Yeah, and where Stoicism originally came from, this word actually has roots in the 3rd century BC, where Zeno of Citum, or Citium, where Zeno of Citium sat on a porch and talked about these questions like, oh, what emotion would I choose to have in response to certain situations? This kind of questioning became so popular that a whole school of philosophy called Stoicism grew from it. And I mentioned the porch because in Attic Greek, Stoic is porch. Um, and... Stoicism and, and the societies discussing it became wildly popular in Rome, um, where it was a guiding life philosophy for, you know, as we mentioned before, people from slaves to emperors. And it had a, um, it differed slightly from and had a very friendly rivalry with Epicureanism, um, the latter of which was a little bit more about just avoiding all of like the crappy parts of life and, and having like this kind of secluded life of, of thought and friendship rather than learning how to bear life stoically and charge back into it. And much like Stoicism, Epicureanism actually has a bit of a bad rap as well, because it ended up becoming associated with eating and drinking and debauchery, when it's in fact really about living a fairly quiet, thoughtful, contemplative life with a few friends and simple meals. Contemplate this. Is it pronounced contemplative or contemplative? I don't know. Is it contemplative? I've always thought it was contemplative. I thought you said contemplative. Oh, I might have. I don't know. I actually don't know. Well, Contemplate it. Yeah. Okay. Well, someone tweet us the answer. Thanks. Uh, so what? what is Stoicism? We've talked about where it comes from. The Stoic, I mean, first off, this is all going to be a great summer. I mean, there are books and books and books. Oh, written, yeah. Right. So, I mean, take this with a grain of salt. But the Stoics make the case that no event, no circumstance, no situation is inherently good or bad. We only tell stories to ourselves in our own minds, or we have interpretations about those events which ascribe some sort of qualitative meaning to them. So the, the conclusion of this is that reality itself is just what it is. It is. There is no value that is intrinsically attached to it, and all of your value judgments in response to these circumstances are your own. And one of the interesting conclusions that you can draw from this with some work is that your well-being, your happiness, your peace, your sort of flourishing, your prosperity does not depend on any particular external circumstance. You don't need anything from the world to be whole or complete or even content. Everything that you need to be content and be happy is in your own mind um, and is something that's that 
cannot be taken from you. Um, and this idea was wildly popular among the educated slave class of Rome, which who literally were, were slaves all of their lives, but smart enough to be able to have, you know, many of them were scribes and such. So they were great readers and writers. So they read about stoicism um, and it was a way that they were able to look at their lives and say, hey, I don't have control over my external circumstances, but I do have what I need inside of me, my own reason in order to be happy. One of the big names in Stoicism is a, it was a guy named Epictetus, and he was, uh, as you described, this he was a slave. He was obviously a, an educated and intelligent slave, but one only has so much control over their circumstances at that point. And I think one of the things that really interests me about Stoicism is sort of the big names who who has practiced it in history. Because while Epictetus was was one of the big names, he wasn't the first. The, the big na name that came immediately after him was Marcus Aurelius, who was a Roman Empire at the height of the Roman Empire's might. And, I mean, you could arguably make the case that he was the most powerful person in the world at that time. And much of his intellectual influences came from this guy Epictetus, 100 and, I don't know, 120, 130 years earlier, who was a slave. Yeah, what's really interesting about Aurelius is you can read his book Meditations, which is essentially his diary. He's he's on the banks of the Danube in the winter fighting barbarians. You know, it's uh, in a military camp. It's not comfortable living here for this guy who is sick all the time, but but generally considered one of the five. Well, sorry, very strictly considered one of the five good emperors of Rome. Um, you know, really great guy, fantastic. Everyone says so. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. And uh, he one of the things he talks about in meditations is he recognizes that even though he's allegedly the most powerful man in the world, there is so much of his own life and in particular the world around him that he's expected to have command over that is completely outside of his control. So he's this incredibly humble guy for realizing the limitations of of human power and our ability to, um, you know, change our circumstances. Um, he was a big, he was big into reminding himself constantly that, hey, at this moment, the circumstances are what they are. All I can choose is what am I going to do next? And so what's interesting is that from the perspective of the slave, this could seem a philosophy of total fatalism. Like, don't do anything. Nothing's in my control. But what it what it really is is it's a it's a philosophy of judgment and selection, and I don't mean value judgment, but I mean looking at the world critically and saying, okay, this is really what things are. What can I actually do in response, and what do I have to accept? What do I have to choose? Like, hey, this is just the way it is. For example, the sun's going to set at a certain time today. Nothing is going to be done about that, whether I like it or not, whether I'd rather it's, you know, stay up longer or shorter, doesn't matter. And what is the stuff that as it's happening or as, you know, in response to it having happened, I can choose to attempt to influence. And so far from being a, a truly fatalistic or life denying philosophy, this is a life affirming philosophy um, about rather than just kind of flailing in response to everything, choosing what you can influence 
and choose and and how you're going to influence. So if you've read Aristotle, um, this is a lot. The Stoics are a lot like Aristotle in that they believe that humans are at their best when they're following their rational nature, um, and that means uh, and their nature is the universe and the way things are, not just trees and stuff. Um, they believe that man has a rational nature um, and that. Just as a knife is best when it is sharp and cutting things, man is best when man is using one's rational mind to participate in society um, and to treat others fairly, justly, uh, and to make the world a better place. Right. So the idea is, if this is human nature, is if this is the aspect of human nature where when implemented or employed the most, human beings are at their best... The idea is how to live more in tune with this nature, right? How, how to use your reason to interpret the world around you and how to be an active and productive. This, this meant that uh, this was the same essentially as being an active part of society, which in the minds of these people was important because we are social animals. So the, the idea is to help others as much as possible and to not react negatively to things that are outside of your control because essentially gain no benefit from it. Yeah, it's fundamentally irrational to look at something that's not in your control or something that is and feel pain from it because that pain is a rejection of reality. It's saying, oh, I don't want this to be true, but it is true. And so the rational, uh, the rational being, therefore, in the stoic perspective, accepts things as they are without judgment. This means that Stoics believe that humans are at their best, their happiest, most at peace when they're not compelled by desire, which is wanting something to be different, fear, which is wanting something to be different, or other negative emotions that are a form of rejecting reality now and wishing idly uh, that reality were different from the way it is. So they believe that negative emotions arise when our expectations and our, our you know, our the, the story we tell in our head about the way things should be is different from the way things are when that doesn't make sense. So the idea is the Stoic needs to cultivate some ability to suspend judgment of how good or bad something is in the immediate sense, right? Because we respond to things often emotionally more quickly than our rational mind can interpret it. And by doing this, essentially give give ourselves enough time to employ our ability to use reason rather than just this instantaneous initial emotional reaction. And that enables Stoics to be the thinkers and the planners and the strategists in a room full of people that are basically going crazy and losing their minds because of some really challenging circumstance. Now, this does not mean that one pretends or should pretend that emotions do not exist because they do. Uh, rather, it means trying to check them when they are, when you have a reaction to something that you can't cr truly control and your emotions are getting in the way of either you interpret. 
If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag? Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Putting that circumstance or um, finding a, a more reasonable way to react to it. Yeah, and reasonable in this case means effective, right? So if you read something on the news that, you know, is happening on the other side of the world or it's one guy did one bad thing and it's now over and you're really mad and you're really caught up by it, this is just distracting you. It doesn't actually help you make the world a better place. And so being able to, to see that emotion for what it is, put it aside and say, okay, that thing happened. It's outside of my control. I need to focus on what's in my control. It's one of the ways that Stoics believe humans can be most effective in trying to change the world. Um, and so one of the big questions that Stoics have to grapple with, that everyone has to grapple with, but Stoics do grapple with, is what's in our control and what's not in our control. Right, because one really central tenet of Stoicism is determining what you can actually control. And the idea here is if you have negative uh interpretations to something that's truly out of your control, you are causing yourself undue mental anguish. There's nothing you can do about it. 
Uh, it's better just to accept that the circumstances circumstance is as, as it is and move on. This was a, a concept laid out by Epictetus and the, the slave, the Roman slave, and, and coming from him, from that point of view, you can kind of understand how this sort of thing would be a useful, a practical philosophy, right? And what we've mentioned is that what what's interesting is that as time went on and as this philosophy uh, philosophy was picked up by more people, including a later Roman em- uh, emperor, they nonetheless found that the nature of their existence of the nature of their existence meant that there were still things that were outside of their control. And a lot of what Marcus Aurelius writes on um, is essentially what rational tools you can use to determine what those things are and focus instead on the things that he could control. What's really interesting, I think, about Aurelius's work is he also, because he had, you know, wine and people, you know, he'd show up everywhere and people would throw him parades just because of his title, is he realized that the seemingly good things aren't in our control either. And they don't really mean anything for us, right? He realized his life was not actually better because people would clap for him when he'd walk in a room. He, in fact, said, uh, listen to the applause, how empty it sounds. That's a good line. Yeah. So he realized that just as this like bad thing happening off somewhere else was outside of his control and, and didn't have to impact him, the seemingly good things had no power over him either. And that's important in part because he knew that they were temporary, right? That we would all age and that fortune would turn, bad things, seemingly bad things would happen, you know, people we love die, we get sick, we get hurt, we die. Um, And it was by not being attached to these seemingly good things, by realizing their lack of power over our reality, over, you know, what's important, um, that he was able to also keep his head from swelling as emperor Right, and keep himself from being attached to the um, the drapery and the frill of it, and just get on with his job. Um, one of the famous Roman lines is, "All glory is fleeting." Hmm. Um, and so you can synthesize these to approach what's in your control, what's not, and what matters and what doesn't. Obviously, once something has happened, it must be outside of your control. It's in the past. If it's happening right now, you know it's going to end because all things end. Uh, but it doesn't mean that all of the future is outside of your control. The, the Stoic approach to these events is to understand the present as it is and use reason to choose how to act most effectively in response, short-circuiting the emotional mayhem of either, you know, hate rejecting something for what it is or clinging to what it is right now. Say it's the applause, you know, and you say, what action can I take that will make the world, you know, my life a better place for me or the world a better place for everyone. So that that said, we, we've talked about what Stoicism was, where it came from. How can you apply Stoicism to politics today and to your own political discourse? One of the things I really like to do as an exercise for myself in, in thinking about how I want to act and think in response to stuff is I like to imagine the political leaders that I admire most today and, and throughout history. And if you look back throughout history, many of the most celebrated political leaders, Gandhi, Martin Luther King, Winston Churchill, Abraham Lincoln, George Washington, Simone Bolivar, 
One thing that all these people had in common was their ability to bear incredible hardship, difficulty, challenge, anxiety, threat, etc. with grace, right? And when everyone else, you know, in the heat of battle or under the blitz or being beaten by British troops, they were able to keep a cool head and decide on what action they were capable of taking in response to this crisis, and they did it. And this made them rocks that others leaned on, right? This is what made them leaders. Um, when others were panicking or in distress, these guys had gravity that others naturally, you know, gravitated towards. And often, of course, the thing we see in them is they make speeches or take action that may have even been designed to make others emotional because they needed to incite mass action. Um, and you may have heard a lot of emotion in their voice. And this is... This is great because, of course, Stoics aren't about not being emotional, right? They're about choosing what actions to take. And if that means bringing emotion into their action, they do it, right? And so these emotions became very powerful tools that they got to use in order to affect great change in the world rather than uncontrollable forces that controlled them. So let's take one aspect of stoicism and think about how we can apply it to political uh, political conversations so this idea of what's in your control and what is not in your control right so think about the last time you had a political conversation with your friend and it, you know didn't end up ruining the night when you approach this conversation you can imagine that often most people's goals are to try to convince the other person that their position is the correct one. And this it, it seems reasonable within this context to therefore approach these discussions by applying strict reason uh, to the issue, disproving what makes no sense and approving of what does make sense. However, e even with this approach, you it, it will prove less effective if the person that you're having a conversation with is not willing to change their mind in the moment. And recognize that recognizing this means uh, recognizing that this is an aspect of the conversation that is outside of your control. And if that seems absurd to you, think about the last time someone else convinced you in the moment to change your mind when having a conversation about politics. So what usually happens in these circumstances instead is there's a back and forth that becomes increasingly heated uh, neither party is clearly going to back down at a certain point and then you know you, that just fuels your anger and you become more upset because well this this other person is clearly clearly being thick-headed right yeah and so the stoic framework kind of sh kind of makes the case that this kind of thinking is almost a form of insanity, right? Because what it is, is it's reality denying. We know that we don't often change our minds about politics in the moment. We know that we're attached to our political positions. We feel very strongly about them, that they're right, that they're not only correct, but but morally righteous. And when we have a conversation with someone from who's come from a different place who's a you know had different experiences and therefore built up a different notion we come off surprised and upset that they haven't changed their minds when part of us already knows that this is already hard and this um this seeming contradiction comes from in the stoic case a lack of acceptance of reality 
for what it is. And therefore, it causes us to have these negative emotions and be less effective. So in circumstances like these, what is actually in your control? Well, if you recognize what the other person wants, you can, even if you know that there's going to be this aspect of the conversation that you can't change their mind in the moment, you can nonetheless move to build a relationship with that person. And that can give you opportunities in the future in which you can change their mind. Or at the very least, it lets you avoid the uh, you know social turmoil of that particular moment and lets you move past uh, what could have potentially hindered you know developing a, a closer bond with someone. One of the models I really like for using for the art of influencing is the salesperson because a salesperson is in a position where they have to influence someone to make often a very important decision or change their minds about something because they need to eat. And when you need to eat, your motivations change, right? You're, you're actually thinking about winning rather than saving face, rather than getting points, etc. And what salespeople do in these things called complex sales, um, which are, you know, when you know it's going to take a long time to get someone on board with something like making a million dollar purchase, what they do is they spend a lot of time up front developing relationships, understanding the other person's perspective, uh, learning about them and coming to appreciate and empathize with them before they try to actually make their sale. This is what people who are good at this do. And it's because they're not emotionally attached to you know, quote, being right. What they're attached to is winning in the end. And so they don't get emotional or they're able to set aside their emotions when the going gets tough or someone doesn't agree with them and say, what is the thing that I'm going to do next to make progress in this way? Right now, this, this doesn't mean sidestepping challenging negotiations or not, not engaging on a substantial topic because you're afraid it's going to you know, ruin the mood or something like that. But rather, it means understanding which approach is most likely to work in which circumstances, depending on what your own goals are. Yeah, so if you're not letting yourself get emotionally heated in a conversation, but instead thinking about your broader goal, you can consider today or in your next conversation with someone who disagrees with you, what's the thing that you can do to make progress? It could be, for example, to you know get someone to ask themselves an interesting question that they hadn't considered before. Give them something to think about that they can stew on by themselves, because indeed we all need time to digest. And in the sales process, people know this. You leave with someone and let them stew. Um, or just or just let them know that changing their mind doesn't mean that they're going to lose points with you or that you're going to, you know, that you're going to say, I told you so or give them a hard time. Um, and thereby what you do is you help them loosen their own emotional hold on their position. All of these are tactics that start to become more clear to you when you are you know, acting stoically and thinking about your broader goal and what you can, what is in your control when you're having a conversation. If, if a basic tenet of stoicism is understanding what's in your control and what isn't, I think this raises uh, a question that Eric and I have kicked back uh, between the two of us before and which we disagree a little bit on. So that'll come out here in a minute. But the, I think there is a risk of stoicism which actually says more about the applicability of the philosophy and, and rather how to use the philosophy in a successful way. 
So if the goal is to understand through the application of reason what events are within your control and which aren't, I think there's a risk that, or people might think there's a risk that you assume that too much is outside of your control when it, in fact it isn't. This might be easier, but it, it could lead to apathy, right? If, after all, you can't influence events X, Y, and Z, then why expend the energy worrying about them? And I, I think the, the problem with thinking about, and I think it is a real risk, is why I bring it up, but the, the issue of thinking about it this way is that sometimes you may not actually be able to influence event X, but you can influence event Y. However, you will not learn about your control over event Y until after expending a fair degree of energy and effort on both of them. So how then to overcome this, this risk of apathy in applying Stoic thought? This is why Marcus Aurelius stresses the importance of living a life of the mind constantly questioning your assumptions and seeking the truth in things to to the extent possible. Because if you're not constantly sharpening and honing your reasoning abilities, you're you're I think you're likely to misinterpret what is in your control and what isn't. And this will lead you to fall out of harmony with with your nature as, you know, using the Stoic vocabulary. That is to react negatively to the wrong things or the things that you can't actually control. Yeah, or to know that something's in your control or to make and to make decisions that lead to harm rather than to benefit. That's just as big a risk. So I I think up to this point, Eric and I tend to agree, and I will now present sort of the point where I think I tend to disagree with him on and we'll give you both of these perspectives and you can kind of think what you will. Now in in my mind, this risk of apathy uh, if you're not able to effectively understand what events are and are not in your control, I think this implies that Stoicism is not a philosophy that someone who is very uninitiated in life can practice successfully. I think it requires the experience of multiple attempts and failures, pushing yourself to a limit, thinking that something is possible only to learn that it isn't, or pushing yourself beyond your limits, thinking something is impossible and only later finding out that it was possible. This this logic can be trained, or rather, logic reason itself can be trained, but an understanding of the world must, it, it needs to be shaped by a rich variety of experiences, and I think that makes it more challenging to understand what's in your control and what isn't unless you've lived a certain amount. Yeah, in my case is that I certainly agree that when you are when you know less about the world, when you have less experience, you're not going to be as effective in anything that you do, right? I mean, this is you know, this is why we want experienced people, you know, being air traffic controllers and rocket scientists and such, right? This is always true, but I I believe that regardless of what level of experience you have in life, you're always better off with the Stoic approach, and here's why: imagine whether you have life experience or not. And you're approaching the world from sort of the opposite perspective. You know, you're you're sort of a letting your emotions dictate what you think is in your control and not, and letting your emotions dictate how you react to something and what action you take. This is an animal brain, right? It's something that comes from our evolution. 
And it's now in control about how you're going to feel and what you're going to do. You're going to take action or not take action without considering at all what's in your control and what's out of it because you're not using that stoic method of thinking to to parse that out and judge it. So you're mostly going to be wasting your time. Um, in fact, I think so often we take action that wastes our time, whether it's you know, whether it's dedicated action or whether it's sort of slacktivist action, like posting on Facebook or complaining on Twitter or, you know, getting some good one-liner in that, like, oh, we sure showed them or writing some article that says, like, so-and-so blasts such-and-such a position. You know, we do this stuff and and when we're questioned about it, we look back and we say, yeah, 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 I know that wasn't going to change anything, but it was worth it anyway, right? Like, people's, people are so used to being ineffective that they begin to claim that their efforts are worthwhile, even though they know that they're kind of useless. So with these two takes in mind, regardless of which make more sense to you, I think you can draw similar implications from, from both of them and as it relates to the requirement of life experience in practicing stoicism. And that means that to, to a practice stoicism or, or to attempt to practice stoicism requires a commitment that, at least at the beginning, cultivating an ability to both crave and desire uh, something sufficiently, and, and you know that is to have an emotional attachment to it enough in order to apply the amount of energy, the the incredible effort in order to attempt to achieve it. That that energy and desire needs to be balanced by a willingness to abandon that effort without heartbreak if you discover that the objective is impossible. Do these both, all the while holding in mind that a willingness to abandon a goal must not lead to a premature abandonment of it. I agree. I think this is a, a necessary path for the thoughtful person or the stoic to take, that we all have to be prepared to attempt action knowing that it could fail. Right, so I think that you can apply reason to say that, hey, I I can never be certain whether I'm going to successfully influence something, right? You never know. I mean, you could, on your way over to the thing, that's the surefire, click the button, you could get hit by a bus. You know, everything is uncertain, ultimately. And if we accept that things are uncertain, even the stoic is willing to say, mm, you know, I think this one seems more likely, or this seems less likely, or or this is the best this seems like the best way to use my time of all the things that I could influence. And, you know, and we're going to make mistakes. And I think we can we can all accept that we're going to, at times, not take action when we learn we should have. And we're going to take action when we're going to learn later that it was the wrong action or that we should have taken action on something completely different from what we took action on. And this, I agree that this process of learning and, and being deliberate about the learning and being deliberate about knowing that we're taking action with risk, with uncertainty, that it might fail and that we might need to let go and move on because something else seems like a better move later is definitely important and definitely something that's very difficult to develop. Um, but I think there are no shortcuts to it, certainly. Yeah, and to me, that that, that means that stoicism is, is really only something that can be practiced gradually through life, which is ultimately why it's a it's a philosophy that that appeals to me it holds i think greater practical applicability the more life experience you have the more you push yourself the more you realize your boundaries 
and the more you recognize ultimately again what things are beyond the control of of any one person yourself and what things are within your control and i think that's one of the beautiful things about stoicism and you know some other similar ways of looking at things you know we mentioned buddhism um which tends to be a little bit more of a retreating kind of philosophy especially from the theravada perspective but for the thoughtful, rational person, we know that we're going to become more powerful over time through a series of making mistakes, through a series of learning, through a series of you know, developing life experience. Um, and it's exciting to know, I think, that if you are thoughtful and if you are committed to learning and thinking, that you're going to become more powerful over time um, and that in the future you're going to be able to influence far more over what's really important and also to have a better sense of what's really important than you do now. Right. And and for, frankly, a lot of people, the, the realm of what lies beyond their control may turn out to be very little. Some people just have that much power. But when I, when I think of this, I remind myself that even the most powerful man on the planet, Marcus Aurelius at the, at the time, and, and arguably the most famous Stoic, recognized his own limits and recognized that r- regardless of who he was, uh, this, this philosophy of recognizing your limitations and the benefits that it can accrue to you as, as a result of that was, was still useful to him. So for those of you who are interested in learning more about Stoicism or also the different ways of thinking about how to interpret the world and how to choose how you interpret the world and what your emotional reactions are, including Buddhism and some modern psychology, um, we've got tons of great reading in the show notes, all stuff that Xander and I have read and loved uh, we encourage you to go get them. We're not getting any commission for them. We just think they're great books. So go to reconsideredmedia.com slash podcast. Click the link for this show, The Modern Stoic, and you'll be able to see in the bottom of the show notes, or in the bottom of the page on the show notes, links to all of these great books that I hope some of y'all will pick up. You know, tweet us at ReconsiderPod or find us on Facebook there as well with your thoughts, uh, especially if you've done some reading before, you disagree. We'd love to hear what you think. And with that, remember, don't let the pundits do the thinking for you. Pause and reconsider. This is Xander signing off. And this is Eric signing off. 